Now, we are in uh, our study of the book of Acts, the ninth chapter, and we've come to the last paragraph of uh, chapter 9. And if you kind of peruse back, if you've been here over the last couple of sermons on Acts, uh, you've uh, noticed that all of chapter 9 up to this point has been about Saul and his conversion on the Damascus Road and all that went about in his uh, establishment of his ministry and his conversion. And then in verse 32, it's as if Luke, uh, the Holy Spirit-filled author of the book, just abruptly changes. And all of a sudden, we've left Saul, and now we're on to Peter. Uh, for these two stories here at the end of chapter 9. They're, they're, just, they're just quick stories about, uh, about miracles that uh, God did through the ministry of Peter. And uh, I want us to just look at these today. So uh, the, the first one found in verse 32 of Acts 9 through 35. It says, Now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up, and all who lived at Lydda and Sharon, the surrounding area, saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Just a quick geography lesson so we kind of get our bearings where this is happening. Lydda there's three circles on the map. Uh, Jerusalem is the bottom one. Lydda is the middle one. Joppa, which is the next miracle we're going to read about, is the one to the farthest left. Um, and you know what is in these... Jerusalem's right where it's, it's uh, there. It's still there today. Uh, Lydda, you know what sits on top of Lydda right now? Ben-Gurion Nash International Airport, okay? It's the main uh, Israeli airport that sits right exactly on the same spot uh, where that used to live. And uh, Joppa is now known as Jaffa, and it is actually just a southern suburb of the big uh, metropolis, uh, Tel Aviv. And you may wonder, why is he showing all, uh, showing all of this to us? And I've got one reason why I'm showing it to you, because I like geography. <laughs> Anybody else with me? Huh? Yeah? Okay. You just kind of were enlightened about all that. It has nothing to do with what I'm going to say, but there it is, all right? Um, anyway, you get the picture. Aeneas had been paralyzed for how many years? Eight years. Eight years bedridden. Every single day, someone coming in to take care of every one of your needs. And then one day... You didn't ask for this, but Peter walks into your room. <laughs> There's nothing here that says Aeneas says anything. He's just laying there as he has for eight years. Peter walks into the room and says, you know, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. I kind of like that. It's kind, of a, it's kind of what parents say to kids. It's time for school. Get up and... Make your bed. But you know, you think about it. What he's really communicating is this. Aeneas, your home for the last eight years has been that bed. No longer. You're done. Get up. Leave your place of paralysis. You're free. Make your bed because it doesn't need you there anymore. I just love it. Don't you? You love the story of a miracle, right? 
And uh, what's the impact of the miracle? It says the whole city, in fact, the whole region, turned to the Lord. I say amen. Next miracle, verse 36. Some of you are thinking he's moving right along. Maybe we might get out early today. No. Thirty-six. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, and what happened over there, right? And they sent two men to him, imploring him, don't delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. And Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and the widows back in, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, you think? (laughs) And what was the result? Many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed days, many days, in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Well, we know about Tabitha. She's a godly woman, kind, it says, charitable, quite a seamstress, it says, Uh, well-loved. So many people had gathered in and Uh, that were mourning over her death. It says in the passage that when she died, uh, they washed her and put her upstairs. Does that seem odd to you? It seems a bit odd to me that they washed her (laughs) and put her upstairs. Uh, This would have been extremely odd even in this culture. It's not going to take long for the body to you know, not smell the best. And, uh, but somewhere, somebody had heard that over in Lydda, there's a man named Peter, and I heard what he did to a man who had been laying in bed for eight years. And they says, you two guys, you need to go get Peter. They dispatched two people. Wouldn't you love to have been those guys? Peter... We got this friend, Tabitha. She died. They just washed her and put her upstairs. You need to hurry. She's dead. I mean dead. He arrives. He prays. And what happens? She arises. And what's the result of the miracle? Many believed in the Lord. So my first point is this. God's work is always about the eternal, not the temporary. And uh, I think sometimes we need to hear that because we want God to be very focused on the temporary, right? God, I'm focused on the temporary. You need to be focused on the temporary, and I need fixes for this thing right here, right now, and eternally, eternity, well, that's somewhere down the road, but I need temporary help in this world. And uh, 
These miracles were not about temporary relief from paralysis or even death. Uh, We know that these miracles are... um, They're temporary relief. I don't want to call them a Band-Aid, but you know what I mean? Uh, Where is the paralytic today? He's in a grave. Uh, Where is Tabitha? She's (laughs) re-dead, right? Okay? I just came up with that, but, you know, I kind of like it. All right? In other words... The value of a temporary miracle always points to a greater eternal purpose. He uses very real human situations in your life, in my life, to bring about his eternal purposes and his good. It's good to know that God never just shows off. He doesn't just perform to the crowd. And as I, I was writing that, and I thought, I best not ask him to, because sometimes I do, right? God, if you would heal that, oh, man, what a crowd that would draw. What impressive reputation you would gain. If you would just, right? There is eternal purpose in everything he does. And I think it's important to understand the context of these two stories at the end of chapter 9. This, this Christian faith, you know, we've, we've, many of us have grown up. We've grown up in a culture that embraces the faith, and, and we kind of have come to believe that that's the way it's always been, quite the contrary. In this setting, the Christian faith was very suspicious to Jews in this area of the world. I mean, they probably heard Jesus speak. They might have seen his, a miracle or two. And they see the ministry of the apostles and the close-knit community of the church, and they're intrigued by it, but it just can't be right. I've been taught all my, all my life a certain way about the law, and the Pharisees say Jesus is bad, and I'm so confused, and I don't know what to believe, and... Can we trust these guys claiming to be apostles of Christ? Can we believe that Jesus was who he said he was? It's these miracles, these accompanying signs. It it gave validation, attestation to the life of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles. This new faith demonstrated by this supernatural activity of God through Jesus, through these apostles, this truly is from God. It would be hard to ignore the evidence being presented and say, ah, it's all a sham. The evidence was overwhelming. You see, Peter, when he was giving his first message as a spirit-filled believer back in Acts 2, he said this about Jesus. Look at the 22nd verse of Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, and catch this phrase, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Miracles validated that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God. 
They were necessary because, well, we read about it earlier back, I think, in, math, uh, in Acts 4 or 5, maybe, maybe 6. Don't, don't go look right now, okay? You know what I'm saying. All right. They talked about, when they were deciding what to do with the apostles, they talked about, well, there's been these movements that have come and gone before, and if this one is not of God, there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, it's just going to come and go. If it is of God, we better not mess with it, and, you know, that kind of thing. And I think the popular feeling was Jesus was just another one of these claiming to the the Messiah, using words of persuasion, trying to convince and gather a following. But he was different. Think about when they were there that day in Capernaum and uh, Jesus was talking and the roof got opened up and the paralytic that everybody knew was laid down by his four friends and Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. You've been healed today. Or when they saw, they were at the wedding and they saw the water turned into wine and then they saw the blind man see and they saw the leper who they knew had been that way and he was healed and and then on the day of the cross, they, the earthquake and the sun, the moon turning red, and they people who were once dead walking out of tombs, and they had to they had to agree with the centurion that day. Surely this was the Son of God. Look at all this evidence. The miracle-working ministry of Jesus was extended into the hearts and lives of the, of the disciples as this new church began, the more attestation of the validity of this movement. And uh, we've seen throughout the book of Acts, even after Jesus ascended into heaven, miracle after miracle after miracle. Acts 2, people speak in languages they had never known before. A man who has never walked in his life healed at the temple gates in chapter 3. Chapter 4, we read that this new church was praying in the entire building what? shook. Chapter 5, we see a a couple come in and and they're trying to cheat the church and trying to cheat God and they drop dead in a church service. How's that? That'll get your attention, right? It says the the people (laughs) would hear that the apostle Peter was going to be walking down the street. So what did they do? Grandma's sick. Look at grandma out there. Maybe his shadow will fall on her. And everybody who was sick who fell under Peter's shadow was what? Healed. And then the one I kind of like is the disciples are all thrown in jail, arrested. And in the middle of the night, they're broke out of jail by an angel. (laughs) I think that'd be cool. (laughs) And not only are they broke out of, it, of jail by an angel, the angel leaves the jail locked and the guards in their place. I don't know what happened, right? There could be no mistake. The evidence was too great. This new movement that proclaimed Jesus was not like all those charlatans that had come before. The miraculous validated this was the Son of God. Believe in Him. You know, I read stories like this and I think, 
It'd be kind of cool to see a miracle. Would you like to see a miracle? I'm not, I didn't say that like I'm going to do one right now, okay? But I know, I know, let you down. Uh, but who wouldn't want to see a miracle? I, but, I, you know, I, I ask myself, why would I want to see a miracle? I have the written word of God. I understand the faith. I, uh, I've come to believe that he is the risen Christ. He is, his grace has been shed abroad in my heart. He's changed my life forever. And it would just be kind of nice to see something really spectacular. It would be really inspiring. It would be so cool. And no doubt it would be all of those things, but can we see how different that is in this day and age as compared to the necessity of these in the early church? And then I take it a step further. Do I need a demonstration of God's miraculous power in order for me to take the step and believe? Prove it to me. And then I will believe. I hear people today say um, that in order for me to believe, I need proof that He exists. Now, I've never heard that from any of you, but I've heard people say that. Conversations with people who are atheists or agnostics and... uh, They decide that I can't have absolute proof that there is a God, so I'm going to believe that there is no God, which is the atheistic position. And and I would say this, if, if if a person is a true atheist and doesn't believe that there is a God and, and takes that position of faith, because that is a faith position, um, the only thing I can say about that is they're, they're either um, have not thought through their position or they're intellectually dishonest. You cannot look at the evidence and remain an atheist. I just, I just don't... I've had conversations with atheists, and, and I understand where they're coming from, but they have to deny a preponderance of massive evidence and say, no, I'm not going to believe all of that. I see all these miracles and be like in the New Testament where you see Jesus actually do these. No, he's not real. That's atheism. Agnostics just believe I can't know. There's no definitive proof, so I just, there's no way you can know that there's a God. And I would contend that is also a statement of faith. (laughs) Taking no position is taking a position of no position. You following? I'm not sure I'm following, but it's okay, right? I've always said that Christianity is a reasonable faith. They're all faith positions. Christianity is a faith position. It is a reasonable faith because it looks at the evidence and decides that the written Word of God is the best explanation for what we all know to be true and what we can see in the world around us. To demonstrate, to illustrate this, I'll give you a little illustration. Let's say there's an accident at a busy intersection and 
you didn't see the accident. You just happened upon it after the fact. And one car is obviously bashed in in the back end. And uh, the driver says he was just stopped at the light and he was rear-ended. And the other car is a bashed in front end. And the driver is obviously quite intoxicated. There were many witnesses who saw firsthand that the drunk driver plowed into the other car. So I've just given you the evidence, okay? So let's relate it to the, 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 the three belief systems that I've been talking about. Uh, the Christian would draw the reasonable conclusion that based on the evidence and the eyewitness accounts, I come to the conclusion that the intoxicated driver is at fault and rear-ended the other car. Amen. The agnostic would say, I really can't be sure because I didn't see it happen. And the, the atheist would say, what wreck? <laughs> I don't see a wreck. I would contend that the evidence for faith is stronger than that. No one witnessed the, cre the creation of the heavens and the earth, but no one witnessed evolutionary processes either. <laughs> so both are positions of faith. Don't, don't buy the lie that one is science and one is religion. They are both positions of faith based on evidence. So the real question is, which one has more evidence? And uh, I present to you that there is the intricacies of life, the complexity of design in all of nature. There is a written communicative code of DNA written into every living cell. The uniqueness of human beings having the ability to feel, to think rationally, to love deeply, all produce evidence that this could not have occurred from random molecules colliding over spans of time. It is not a reasonable conclusion based on the evidence. And folks, I'm here to tell you today, at some point in your life, some point in my life, you have to decide whether or not you will simply believe based on the preponderance of the evidence. Your doubts may scream at you for absolute proof, I need to see a miracle. And I'm here to tell you, most likely, I'm not going to rule it out, but most likely, Jesus is not going to appear to you in human form and say, here, put your hand in my scars. You may never see a limb grow back or somebody raised from the dead. And but will you believe? And I would say there's just so much evidence that makes believing in Jesus not only a spiritual decision, it's the only logical explanation. It's the only logical response. There's a scene from the life of Christ where he appears to his disciples after he's risen from the dead. And uh, he appears to all of the disciples except one. One guy's missing. It's kind of like, where's Waldo? You know, I don't know. Where's... Where's Thomas? Where's Thomas? And they all see Jesus, and 
This is really the first time they've seen him after he's risen from the dead. And they're so excited. They just, they're just, their life has just sprung back to life. And they go to Thomas. Thomas, we saw him. He's alive. And Thomas, he gets so excited. No. I don't believe it. Show me. I need proof. Unless I can put my finger in the holes in his hand where the nails were. He makes this declaration. I will not believe. And so Jesus shows up. In the passage in John 20, it's moving. To me, it's just moving. Jesus says to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and go ahead, put it in my side. Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but believing. At this point, can you imagine what it would be like to be Thomas? He says, my Lord, my God. And Jesus says, because you have seen me, have you believed? And then he starts talking about you and me. Blessed are they who did not see, and yet they believed. Blessed are they who did not see, but said, I believe. Blessed are those who see no miracle, who have no proof, but believe anyway. And there's another, I got to just, this is kind of a parenthetical little part here, or an added little story, but you know what I love about the Thomas story? Jesus doesn't chastise Thomas for his doubt. He understands his doubt and he has mercy on him. He says, okay, this is just what it's going to take. Give me your finger. Give me your hand. I'll help you walk through your doubt. Jesus understands that there are times in our life, there are situations that are so heavy, so debilitating so difficult to process. We may wonder, where is he and what's happening and how is this going to work? And how, I don't understand and I, I'm confused. I'm, that he will come alongside and walk with us through it. I, I found this little verse, and I, I love this little verse in Jude. Uh, Jude is just one chapter long. And look at verse 22. He's talking to other Christians. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Have mercy on some who are doubting, who are processing their faith, and they can't make sense of this, and they can't figure this out. I don't, where is God? I don't know if he really loves me. I don't know. God understands that we sometimes struggle. And what an encouragement to me. I think of this story often. I've, I've said it here several times. Billy Graham, in his teenage days was facing all the secularism of the day and he was trying to have conversations with people about Christ and he came 
he says, I came so skeptical myself. I couldn't, I couldn't come to a point of absolute proving that Christ was who he said he was and that the Bible is completely 100% true. And he says, one day I'd had it, and he was in the late teens, I think. He said, I went to be alone with God in the forest. <laughs> and he said, I put my Bible in front of me. And he says, in spite of not having all of the answers to all of my doubts, I am choosing this day to believe the Word of God 100%, no matter what it says, for the rest of my life. And Billy Graham, decades later, said that night changed the rest of his life. And I'll tell you today, that night changed millions of lives. Millions of lives who streamed the aisles at those crusades and found the Lord. Blessed are they who do not see nor have all their questions answered or their doubts completely erased. Blessed are they because they just believe. And uh, John Ortberg in his, I love this little book called Faith and Doubt. He says, we are often tempted to think, if I could just have one miracle, one supernatural event in my life, the way they had them in biblical times, then I could know for sure, then I would never, ever doubt. You ever feel that way? I just wish he would just do one spectacular thing. And And throughout our lives, we'll face seasons, challenging seasons that may grow doubt, confusion. It, It can be the loss of a loved one or a deep financial struggle or emotional anxiety or a struggle with depression. And uh, it could be that you're a victim or you're falsely accused. Or I just have to say the truth. No one escapes facing some of these what I call Thomas moments. Do you need proof that he loves you, that he's there? It's dangerous to demand proof of God, folks. It really is dangerous because when you really think about it, the only proof that you're going to be satisfied with is what? For Him to do what you want Him to do. If you're really God, you're going to get me out of this mess. If you're really God, why am I so lonely? If you're really God, why do I have this anxiety and this depression? And I will not believe until you... Thomas, blessed are those in spite of not seeing or knowing or even being delivered, just believe. One last point, and uh, always seeking the spectacular miracle the spectacular proof, I think makes us miss everything God is doing on a day-to-day, in our day-to-day lives, and that there is this 
There is this God who is always pursuing us. There's this God who is always on the job. There is a God. God is always working. Always, always. You believe that today? Even, even when you don't see it, did you know that He's working? Even when you don't feel it, he, He's working. I love this little paragraph from Michael Wells' book. He writes this, A sister in Christ forgave her husband for an affair that he had. Miracle. A grandfather said, When my wife died, I was lonely, but never alone. God filled all my lack. Miracle. A man wrecked his life and family through alcohol, but eventually he found faith in Christ, and years later he received a phone call from a daughter he never knew existed. After years of looking, she had found him. She was a believer in Christ, and God had told her not to give up searching for her real father. What the man had lost was given to him freely. Miracle. A son's drug problem separated him from his father. The father just let go and trusted God finally. Today the son is in ministry, miracle. A brother bound by homosexuality had an encounter with Christ. Today he is free, miracle. One brother committed suicide and another, upon hearing of it, gave his life to Jesus. All miracles? I think so. These are miracles that bring a lasting impact upon life. Stop comparing your way of life to the spectacular. Every single day is a significant miracle in Jesus. (laughs) Amen? And maybe there is someone here today that just needs to hear me say this, that God is working to bring about good in your life right now in the very thing you're going through. You may be stressed, depressed, scared, sad, frustrated, disappointed. In the midst of it all, you're wondering, where is God? Why won't He do something? He is. He is. And you know why I know that? Because he's good. He is always good. And so what I'm asking you today is get your eyes off of needing proof or God to behave according to your will. Put your eyes just squarely where he is and say, I believe in you. I believe in you. I love you because you are good and you have my good in your heart and you are working everything for my good and I trust you. I'm confused and I don't have answers, but I know this. You're good. I don't have my healing, but I know this, that you are good and you're working and I'm scared, terrified, but 
I know this. I know this. You are good. I believe it. Blessed are those who believe. Amen. Father God, I pray today as we close this service, your ministry, your spirit's ministry will move in this place and speak to the hearts of people who find themselves in any kind of struggle. And it's so easy, Father, you know us so well, but we say it to you. It's so easy for us to want the struggle to, to be over and we want the fix to come and we want, we want you to treat our temporary like we treat our temporary. We want healing. We want plenty of money. We want smooth uh, relationships. We want good retirements. We want, we want, and, and we want you involved in all of that. We want you to do and handle all of that and make it, and, and sometimes, Father, it's just good for us to kind of extract ourselves up to and just look at it and say, this is not my home. This, I am not, I am not going to demand of my God proof that he fixed my situation in order for me to follow him and, and walk with him and enjoy him. I am not, I am not going to let the temporary cancel the eternal in my life. So, Father, I pray today that the declaration of this song that we sing will be the declaration of our heart today as we recount the ways in which you've been faithful to us, the ways in which you've been good to us, and we can build our, our trust and our belief in you upon your track record in our lives. And we declare above everything, Father, that you are holy and you are righteous and you are just and you are so, so good. Let's stand today.